I'm reading from the first chapter of the book of Romans, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In our study of the Holy Scriptures, I have shown you how Jesus, the apostles, and the early church fathers, without question, regarded the Scriptures as inspired, infallible, and inerrant. As I left off last week in our survey of how the church has looked at Holy Scripture, I made it to the time of the Reformation. I could look at many of the writings of the Reformers like Luther, Calvin, and others, but I need to concentrate on the English Reformation because I want Anglicans to see that the English Reformers and their immediate successors believed that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. We need to make this very clear because, unfortunately, many liberal Anglicans and Episcopalians have carried on a massive campaign about the English Reformers and their views on the inspiration of Scripture in order to suggest that the English Reformers were unclear about what they believed about the Scriptures. It is quite common now to hear Anglicans and Episcopalians saying things like, biblical inerrancy and infallibility are not accepted by the Episcopal Church. Well, that may be true of the modern Episcopal Church, but it was certainly not true of Anglicans before modernism began its task of trying to undermine the reliability of Scripture. Some even say that Anglicans have never held any kind of theory on the inspiration of Scripture. I will demonstrate that such an idea is false. I will show that historically our Anglican forefathers believed that the Bible is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Unfortunately, part of the problem in understanding what Anglicans have historically believed about the inspiration of Scripture begins with the 39 Articles of 1571. I wish that the writers of the Articles had devoted more time in the Articles to give a clear articulation about their beliefs, but the debates we are having about Scripture in our time were not that prevalent in 16th century England. Article 6 of the 39 Articles is entitled, Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. It reads, Holy Scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not to be required of any man, that it should be believed as an article of the faith, or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Then follows a list of the books that we accept as canonical. Unfortunately, some people have taken that statement and have come to the conclusion that that statement is all that Anglicans believe about the Bible. The Bible contains everything we need to know in regard to salvation. The argument is that there is nothing here about inspiration, infallibility, or inerrancy. Therefore, some tell us, the only thing Anglicans believe about the Bible is that the Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, nothing more. Now, there are a couple of things wrong with coming to that conclusion. First, the 39 Articles were not designed to tell people everything that Anglicans believe about the Bible, or any other doctrine for that matter. 
I've made the point many times that the 39 articles are not a confession of faith like, say, the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Helvetic Confessions. If you look at the Westminster Confession, you find a much more detailed explanation on their beliefs about Holy Scripture and other major doctrines of the faith. The 39 articles, on the other hand, were written primarily to explain the differences in our beliefs from Roman Catholics and sometimes how we differ from the Anabaptists. So Article 6 is not designed to tell us about the inspiration of Scripture. Notice the title, Of the Sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures for Salvation. What is the meaning of that title? Well, you see, the debate raging at the time between the Anglicans and the Roman Catholics was over the sufficiency of Scriptures. Roman Catholics said that the scriptures were not sufficient to tell us how to be saved. Along with scripture, they said you needed the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church. The Anglicans said, no, we don't need the tradition of the Roman Church to tell us how to be saved. Scripture is sufficient. Now, that is all this statement in 39 articles is about. It doesn't say Anglicans have no firm beliefs about the inspiration of Scripture. It doesn't say Anglicans don't believe in inerrancy. It just says that Scripture is sufficient to tell us how to be saved. Bishop Jeremy Taylor, who lived from 1613 to 1667, the famous author of Holy Living and Holy Dying, makes an interesting observation on this debate between Roman Catholics and Anglicans on the sufficiency of Scripture. He writes, This question is between the Church of England and the Church of Rome, and therefore it supposes that it is amongst them who believe the Scriptures to be the Word of God. The Old and New Testament are agreed upon to be the Word of God, and that they are so is delivered to us by the current descending testimony of all ages of Christianity. And they who are first led into this belief find upon trial great afterproofs by arguments both external and internal, and such as cause a perfect adhesion to this truth that they are God's word. An adhesion, I say, so perfect as excludes all manner of practical doubting. Now then, amongst us so persuaded the question is whether or no the scriptures be a sufficient rule of our faith and contain all things necessary to salvation. Or is there any other word of God besides the scriptures which delivers any points of faith or doctrine of life necessary to salvation? Now notice what Jeremy Taylor is saying. He is saying that Roman Catholics and Anglicans are not debating about whether the Bible is the word of God. Roman Catholics and Anglicans were in agreement that the Bible was the inspired Word of God. The debate was about whether the inspired Word of God was sufficient to teach us the way of salvation, or was the tradition of the Roman Church also necessary. But notice that you have this Anglican bishop saying in the 17th century that it was so clear, both by internal and external evidence, that the Bible was the Word of God, there was no reason to doubt it. A little later in that same work, Jeremy Taylor writes about that time before the New Testament was written. There were some in Jeremy Taylor's day who were saying what some people say today, 
that since for a while the early Christians didn't have the New Testament written down and the church did all right for a while without the New Testament, having the word written must not have been that important. And Taylor brings out that it is true that the early Christians didn't have the New Testament for a short period of time, but they did have the apostles. And before the apostles died, their words were written down so that the church would have an infallible record of their words after they died. So Jeremy Taylor writes that the revealed will of God, the law of Christ, was not written in his lifetime, but preached only by word of mouth, is plain and reasonable, because all was not finished, and the salvation of man was not perfected till the resurrection, ascension, and descent of the Holy Ghost, nor was it done presently, but then it was to be observed that there was a spirit of infallible record put into the apostles sufficient for its publication and continuance. But before the death of the apostles, that is, before this spirit of infallibility was to depart, all was written that was intended because nothing else could infallibly convey the doctrine. Notice how Jeremy Taylor, a 17th century Anglican bishop, keeps using that word infallible. When the apostles were alive, there was a spirit of infallibility present with them that kept them from writing error. After they died, this spirit of infallibility was taken away so that no one can write scripture today because no one has that spirit of infallibility. But we still have the infallible words of the apostles in written form because that was the only way we could be sure that the infallible words of the apostles could be preserved for use in the church. So when Anglicans and Episcopalians say that all Anglicans need to believe about the Bible is that it is sufficient for salvation, they are much mistaken. All that the 39 articles addressed was this one Roman Catholic error about the tradition of the church also being needed to teach us the way of salvation. To say that Anglicans of the period had no beliefs about the inspiration of Scripture, to say that they didn't believe in the infallibility of Scripture, to say that they didn't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, is to be grossly misinformed. If you keep reading the 39 articles, though, you'll get a clearer picture about what they believed about Scripture during the time of the English Reformation. Article 7 of the Old Testament says, the Old Testament is not contrary to the New, for both in the Old and New Testament everlasting life is offered to mankind by Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, being both God and man. The writers of the 39 articles believed that the Old and New Testaments were in harmony, both Testaments teaching that salvation is only by Jesus Christ. Article 8 of the Creeds says, the three creeds, Nicene Creed, Athanasius Creed, and what is commonly called the Apostles' Creed, ought thoroughly to be received and believed, for they may be proved by most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. Once again, we see the view of the English Reformers that the only reason we accept the creeds is because they teach what is taught in Scripture. Article 22 of Purgatory makes the same point. The Romish doctrine concerning purgatory, pardons, worshiping, and adoration, as well of images as of relics and also invocation of saints, is a fine thing 
vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of Scripture, but rather repugnant to the Word of God. Every doctrine has to be examined in the light of Scripture. Doctrines must be grounded on Scripture. A very crucial statement on Scripture is found in Article 20 of the Authority of the Church, where we read, The Church has power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith. And yet it is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's Word written. Now pay careful attention. What is the Bible? The writers of the 39 articles believed that the Bible is God's Word written. The Word of God is not some ethereal substance floating in the air that comes to us by some sort of mystical supernatural experience. What is on the written page is the Word of God. Nor should we say that the Bible becomes the Word of God to us if we receive it, or as some neo-Orthodox theologians said, the Bible does not contain the words of God, but the Bible can become the Word of God if we receive it. No, the Bible is God's Word written. These words written on these pages are the very words of God, whether we receive them as the Word of God or not. Now, continuing with Article 20, the church can't ordain any rites or ceremonies that would be contrary to the Word of God, but the statement goes on. Neither may it, the church, so expound one place of Scripture that it is repugnant to another. That statement teaches that the Bible is infallible. The way many people, especially liberal theologians, interpret the Bible today is to interpret the Word of God so that it is repugnant to other parts of Scripture. In other words, they say that the Bible taught one thing in one place, but then taught something that contradicted that teaching in other places. Our Reformers believe that there was a perfect harmony in the Scriptures. Nothing in the New Testament contradicts what we have in the Old Testament. There was not one way of salvation in the Old Testament and another way of salvation in the New Testament. We often hear it said that God was a God of wrath in the Old Testament, but the God in the New Testament is more kind and loving. Now that would be teaching that one part of the Word of God is repugnant to another part of the Word of God. This statement shows us that the English Reformers believed that there were no contradictions in Scripture, and that is why you can't expound one place of Scripture in such a way that it would contradict something else in Scripture. Why? Because that would mean there are errors in Scripture, and there are no errors in Scripture. Furthermore, those who say that Anglicans have not believed in the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture forget about Article 35, which is entitled, Of the Homilies. The Church of England published two books of sermons or homilies. The first book of homilies was published in the time of Edward VI, 1547, and the other during the reign of Elizabeth I, fully published in 1571. Article 35 says that we judge these homilies to be read in churches by the ministers diligently and distinctly that they may be understanded of the people. So the writers of the articles wanted all the people in the English church to hear or read these sermons. 
Now, the interesting thing is that there is a homily about Scripture in the first book of homilies and another homily about Scripture in the second book of homilies. So if you want to get a good idea about what the English Reformers believed about Holy Scripture, take a look at those two homilies, which the writers of the 39 Articles wanted all Anglicans to read or hear. In the first book of homilies, there is a sermon entitled, A Fruitful Exhortation to the Reading and Knowledge of Holy Scripture, which, as I said last week, many scholars believe to have been written by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer himself. But the sermon says, To a Christian man, there can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than the knowledge of Holy Scripture, for as much as in it is contained God's true word, setting forth his glory and also man's duty. And there is no truth nor doctrine necessary for our justification and everlasting salvation, but that is or may be drawn out of that fountain and well of truth. Therefore, as many as be desirous to enter into the right and perfect way unto God must apply their minds to know Holy Scripture, without the which they can neither sufficiently know God and His will, neither their office and duty. Now notice how he refers to the Bible, God's true word, fountain and well of truth. Furthermore, he says, there is no way to know God sufficiently and his will, nor our duty toward God apart from Holy Scripture. So if it is not inspired, infallible, and inerrant, we have a big problem because we can't know God, we can't know how to be justified in the sight of God, and we can't know how to live a good and virtuous life. Again, in the same homily we read, let us stay quiet and certify our consciences with the most infallible certainty, truth and perpetual assurance of them. Let us pray to God, the only author of these heavenly studies, that we may speak, think, believe, live, and depart hence according to the wholesome doctrine and verities of them. And by that means, in this world, we shall have God's defense, favor, and grace with the unspeakable solace of peace and quietness of conscience. And after this miserable life, we shall enjoy the endless bliss and glory of heaven, which he grant us all that died for all, Jesus Christ, to whom with the Father and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, both now and everlastingly. Notice again the conviction that God is the author of this book. And notice again the word infallible we can have infallible certainty that everything we read in Scripture is truth. He refers to Scripture as verities, irrefutable, objective truth. Because the author of Scripture is God himself, we can be absolutely certain that all the promises God made to us will be performed. We would have no such comfort if the Bible were not the infallible Word of God. In the second book of homilies, there's a sermon that many scholars believe was written by Bishop John Jewell, the Bishop of Salisbury. But this sermon is entitled, Of Them Which Take Offense at Certain Places of Holy Scripture. The sermon makes the point that though some people may misinterpret Scripture and not understand Scripture, people should be allowed to read the Scriptures because of all the benefits people receive by reading them. So this is what the sermon, possibly 
by John Jewell says, The great utility and profit that Christian men and women may take, if they will, by hearing and reading the Holy Scriptures, dearly beloved, no heart can sufficiently conceive, much less is my tongue able with words to express. Wherefore Satan, our enemy, seeing the scriptures to be the very mean and right way to bring the people to the true knowledge of God, and that Christian religion is greatly furthered by diligent hearing and reading of them, he also perceiving what in hindrance and let they be to him and his kingdom, doth what he can to drive the reading of them out of God's church. Then Jewel says that some people object to people reading the Bible because they might misinterpret some parts and use that as an excuse for sin. So Jewel writes, we have to read the Bible because the Bible is the only place where we can go to find the true knowledge of God and put to death our sinful lusts. So he writes, but the knowledge of God and of ourselves is so far from being an occasion of evil that it is the readiest yea, the only means to bridle carnal liberty and to kill all our fleshly affections. And the ordinary way to attain this knowledge is with diligence to hear and read the Holy Scriptures. For the whole Scriptures, saith St. Paul, were given by the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. And shall we Christian men think to learn the knowledge of God and of ourselves in any earthly man's work of writing, sooner or better than in the Holy Scriptures, written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. The Scriptures were not brought unto us by the will of man, but holy men of God, as witnesseth St. Peter, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Peter 1.21 The Holy Ghost is the schoolmaster of truth, which leadeth his scholars, as our Savior Christ saith of him, into all truth, John 16, 13. And whoso is not led and taught by his schoolmaster cannot but fall into deep error, how godly soever his pretense is, what knowledge and learning soever he hath of all other works and writings, or how fair soever a show or face of truth he hath in the estimation and judgment of the world. If some man will say, I would have a true pattern and a perfect description of an upright life, approved in the sight of God. Can we find, think ye, any better or any such again as Christ Jesus is and his doctrine, whose virtuous conversation and godly life the scripture so lively painteth and setteth before our eyes, that we beholding that pattern might shape and frame our lives as nigh as may be agreeable to the perfection of the same? Again, Jewel expresses what I told you a couple of weeks ago. God is the author of Scripture. Men wrote what the Holy Spirit moved them to write. And it is through this book that we attain knowledge of God and how to live a godly life. He points out that Satan is the great enemy of the Bible because he knows that it is God's Word which leads people to Christ and the knowledge of God. Therefore, it is the chief aim of Satan to discredit the Bible and teach others that Scripture can be unreliable, just the opinions of men. Furthermore, if we want to know how to live a virtuous life, we can only do so by living like Jesus. But how do we know how Jesus lived? The only source of our information about this holy life 
The only source of our information about his holy life is the Bible. The homily goes on to say, If we desired the knowledge of heavenly wisdom, why had we rather learned the same of man than of God himself, who, as St. James saith, is the giver of wisdom? James 1.5 Yea, why will we not learn at Christ's own mouth, who, promising to be present with his church till the world's end, doth perform his promise, in that he is not only with us by his grace and tender pity, but also in this, that he speaketh presently unto us in the Holy Scriptures, to the great and endless comfort of them that have any feeling of God at all in them. Yea, he speaketh now in the Scriptures more profitably to us than he did by the word of mouth to the carnal Jews when he lived with them here upon earth. For they, I mean the Jews, could neither hear nor see the things which we may now both hear and see, if we will bring with us those ears and eyes that Christ is heard and seen with, that is, diligence to hear and read his holy scriptures and true faith to believe his most comfortable promises. Now, pay close attention to what the homily says. The homily says that if we want to learn wisdom, we can learn it from Christ's own mouth. What is Christ's own mouth? When the disciples heard the word of God during the days of our Lord's earthly ministry, where did they hear it? From the lips of Jesus himself, his own mouth. But where do we hear that word today? Still from his own mouth. And since we do not have him here in the flesh, his mouth is the Holy Scriptures. When we read the Scriptures, it is just as if Christ in the flesh were sitting right across from us. We sometimes think, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have Jesus come in person to speak to me and I could sit at his feet as Mary did and learn from him? Actually, you can do that anytime you like. Just open the Scriptures and you are sitting at Jesus' feet listening to his very words. This book is the mouth of our Lord. The homily says that all you have to do to hear the word of God from the lips of Jesus is bring with you those eyes and ears through which Christ is seen and heard. And what are those eyes and ears you need? The homily tells us what those eyes and ears are. Two things. First, reading and hearing the Word of God diligently, and second, faith. Those two things are your eyes and ears. By reading and hearing the Word of God by faith, we can learn from our Lord Jesus just as surely as if He were physically present. The homily goes on to say, The Scriptures doth in such sort set forth Christ, that we may see both God and man. We may see him, I say, speaking unto us, healing our infirmities, dying for our sins, rising from death for our justification. And to be short, we may in the scriptures so perfectly see the whole Christ with the eye of faith, as we, lacking faith, could not with these bodily eyes see him, though he stood now present here before us. Let every man, woman, and child Therefore, with all their heart, thirst and desire God's holy scriptures. Love them, embrace them, 
have their delight and pleasure in hearing and reading them, so as at length we may be transformed and changed into them. So don't ever be deceived into thinking that all that Anglicans have believed about the Bible is that it was sufficient to show us the way of salvation. No, Scripture, all of Scripture, is God's Word written, infallible, never contradicting itself, God's true Word, the fountain and well of truth, Christ's own mouth. Those are the facts about Scripture that our English Reformers, the early church fathers, the apostles, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself wanted us to believe. Amen.